welcome to episode 19 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your slickest snot host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. We're about halfway through season two with these two episodes. We've got episode 11, Leopard on the Rock, and episode 12, The Devil and Mr. Frog. Apologies, but due to technical difficulties, there are no sound clips from the episodes. And that really bums me out because Kono had some really great lines that would have made perfect tags. And I'm trying not to be too disappointed about it. But we shall muddle on as best we can. I shall muddle on as best I can. And my best isn't really that great. Okay, let's go to Hawaii. Season 2, Episode 11, Leopard on the Rock, air date December 3rd, 1969, directed by Irving J. Moore. This is his only episode of Hawaii Five-O. And written by Palmer Thompson, this is his third of three episodes. It's also his last credit listed on IMDb as he passed away shortly after this episode actually aired on December 12th, 1969. A pilot flying a plane carrying President Jakal, the brutal leader of an unidentified country, fakes the need for an emergency landing in Honolulu. The news of this reaches members of an opposition group, a couple of questionable men who orchestrated the landing, and Professor Akbar Savang, the man who ran against Jakal and lost under questionable circumstances and is now living in exile. The news is also of interest to 5 and it's not good. Jakal is a divisive person, to say the least, and his presence in Hawaii could cause a huge problem. 5 has less than two hours to prepare for it. Professor Savang's granddaughter, Banu, who lost both of her parents to Jakal's regime, is more upset about Jakal landing in Honolulu. She feels her grandfather should be the leader of their country, and that America is fine with any leader that isn't communist, even if they're killers. Zavong tries to caution his granddaughter against any rash behavior, but she won't hear of it. She leaves just as Steve arrives. He first asks the professor to make a statement in order to quell his fellow countrymen, but the professor declines. He then asks him not to make any statement at all, which Zavong agrees with. He then tells Steve the horrible story of his son's death and makes it clear that he doesn't seek personal vengeance like some people do. A member of the resistance working at a restaurant seizes an opportunity when the driver of a gasoline truck headed to the airport stops in. He knocks him out and takes his place, driving the truck to the airport himself. Banu and her friends are at the airport too, getting together a protest. Also at the airport are the two shady guys, Clovis and Walters, who are plotting to steal money from Jakal's plane as the president is carrying $10 million that he's embezzled from his country's treasury. Steve meets with Luang Koryo, a counsel from Jakal's country, to America. He wants the protesters outside of the airport dispersed, which Steve won't do. He tries to convince Koryo to have the president switch planes instead of staying in Honolulu until his plane is repaired, but the president most likely won't do it. Five-O goes out to the runway to meet Jakal's plane. Meanwhile, the resistance member in the gas truck breaks through the police line and also heads for the runway, intending to ram Jakal's plane. Five-O intercepts him, and Steve stops him by shooting out his tire. The plane lands without further incident. Because the plane check will take 24 to 36 hours and Jakal won't switch planes, Five-O has babysitting duties. Jakal has a few of his countrymen carrying briefcases handcuffed to their wrists, claiming their important papers that he won't leave at the consulate or on the plane. Corio has arranged for the president to take a suite at one hotel, but Steve informs him that Kono will be there instead. 
The president will be staying at a different hotel, and he's reluctant to allow Corio to know. Ducal appreciates Steve's cautiousness as someone who trusts no one, but eventually allows Corio to come along. The protesters attempt to stop Jacal's car from leaving the airport, not realizing that it's Kono. Dano gets out to confront them, letting them know it's illegal for them to be blocking the road. As the protesters hassle Danny about Fivo's involvement with Jacal, he subtly moves them to the side of the road so the car can pass. Banu is angry about their failure. Fellow protester Mickey says they can find out where Jacal is staying. She says they're done with protesting. They only respect what they fear, and they fear violence. Five-O sneaks Jakal to another hotel and delivery truck. Steve assigns Chin Ho to tail Corio, which ends up connecting him with Clovis and Walters. There's a lot more going on than any of them had suspected. He orders extra security for Kono's suite, which is a good thing, because Banu is on her way to the room. And she's armed. So this is another one of those episodes in which it is stressed that Steve does not care about anything happening beyond Hawaii. He does not care about political turmoil in other countries, only how it might affect Honolulu and his jurisdiction, which you have to admire the man for being so focused. So it makes him for some pretty good scenes with Corio and with Jakal because of his emphasis on his duties. And his duty is very much focused on containing a powder keg and making sure there's a match not put to it. Because the way it's put in the episode, Jakal's country is never named, but it's basically uh, inferred that it's very much like a Cuba-Miami situation in that there are a lot of exiles and expatriates from Jakal's country living in Hawaii. In fact, they actually make direct reference to Cuba at one point because Jenny, and we see a lot more of Jenny in this episode, and she's wearing a lovely yellow shift, but she intercepts Kono because she's been trying to get a hold of Steve because she hears the news on the radio like everybody else, and she's been trying to get a hold of Steve, and she can't find him, and so she intercepts Kono when he comes into the office and asks where Steve is. Kono doesn't know, and she's like, well, have you heard the news? Jakal is landing in Honolulu, and Kono's like, Fidel Castro would be more welcome than Miami. So that gives you a good context of exactly how disliked Jakal is and kind of how much of a joke it is that he's called president and he was elected, um, especially when we have the scene with uh, Savang and his granddaughter Banu and basically how it's put is that Savang won that election, but Jakal had the backing of the military and he just took over and exiled him, and as a result, Banu's parents were tortured to death and murdered in one of his jails. So you can understand why Banu is really, really upset about Jakal's presence in Honolulu and her frustration with her grandfather, who is being very calm and very, I will go about business as usual. And that kind of sharpens the contrast between Jakal and Savang, especially when Steve stops by and first asks him to make a statement, then asks him to make no statement, and then Savang tells him that other men seek vengeance, I don't. So it, it sharpens that contrast between them because when we get, when we finally get to Steve finally meeting Jakal on the plane after the assassination attempt, which I'll talk about that in just a minute, you can see that Jakal is incredibly hot-headed. He is a tyrant. He rules with an iron fist. When he asks about the assassin, Steve's like, yeah, he's being booked and he'll be questioned. And Jakal is like, he would beg to talk in my country and he should be questioned by me. And Steve's like, yeah, no, that's why you're not going to talk to him because we know how you do things in your country. And Jakal talks about how he's 
thought of as a savior, and Steve's not impressed. So you see just kind of what an awful, controlling, vindictive, nasty man he is as compared to Savang. And I like the first assassination attempt because it is, it's two of Jakal's countrymen who've been exiled, I suppose, or they're refugees who've sought asylum or something like that. They're no longer living at home. And they work in this cafe and one tries to talk the other one out of doing this. Mei Lang is the resistance fighter that ends up knocking out the driver of the gas tank and taking over so he can get to the airport and try to kill Jakal. And the other one is saying that we should listen to Savang. This won't get you anywhere. You'll never succeed. You don't really have a plan. And the Mei Lang's like, I've got to try for our countrymen. And he makes this really great speech about how Jakal goes on about destiny, about walking his destiny and that the gods protect him and the gods look out for him. And he's like, I was given this opportunity to have this driver come into my shop while Jakal has landed in Honolulu. I'm not going to sneer at the gods for giving me this. Obviously, he says it a lot better than I do, and it's a really great speech. So he takes off to the airport and makes it onto the runway, and he does. He attempts to ram the, the plane as it lands with the gasoline trunk, knowing he is going to be killed when he does this, but hoping that Jakal goes out too. And of course, 5 stops him with Steve shooting out the tires of a gasoline truck. I would think that would be ill-advised, but you know, he's Steve McGarrett. He can do these things. But when they manage to capture him and they pull him out of the truck and Steve pats him down and he gets cuffed and he looks at the plane landing and he says the gods do look out for him. And it's kind of a kind of a gut punch because it's like this man feels so absolutely hopeless in the face of this horrible tyrant who has ruined his country and that even his attempts fall short. And the thing is, quite a bit of the action does take place at the airport because there's quite a bit of a lead-up intention to Jakal landing because Steve meets with the, the council uh, choreo. We have Benu getting her friends together for this protest, which, bless their hearts, they're in the, the airport parking lot making signs, and they have one of the guys, Mickey, is making phone calls from a, a phone booth to get people together to get them down to the airport for this impromptu protest. So Steve isn't the only one who's been working uh, to prepare for Jakal's landing because what Steve orders everybody to, because he knows there's going to be protests, is that he he has 5-0 working on all of the immigration records for people from Jakal's country to do some low-key surveillance on them because he knows there's going to be protests, but he wants them to be nonviolent. He wants to keep them contained. He also looks into any of Jakal's countrymen who might be working at the airport and arranges to have them take some days off with pay for as long as Jakal is in the country because he does not want them to be enticed to take any action against Jakal and cause an incident, which I think is a lot of work to keep that many people rounded up and under surveillance, but it's 5-0. This is easy for them. So you actually have this really great setup scene in which so we see Banu and her friends in the parking lot organizing this protest then you go past them after they're seen to where Clovis and Walters have pulled up and parked because they're getting out to get their intel so they can rob the plane because they know that Jakal's carrying stolen money on it and they think Jakal's going to leave it in the plane so they need to figure out where the hangar is that the plane is going to be working on and they figured that there won't be too much in the way of security because all of the attention will be on Jakal not on the plane. So as we see them go into the airport to do their recon, Steve pulls up. 
And as Steve drives away, we see the gas truck start to come into the airport. So I really like how they put all of those elements together. Like, here's your powder keg right here at the airport. So Jakal lands safely. We established that he is a jackass and that Steve isn't going to put up with him. And Corio says that he has a suite for the president to stay in while the plane is being repaired. But Steve says that no, that Kona will be staying in there as a decoy. They will put the president somewhere else where no one knows and he doesn't want Corio to know, which Corio obviously is really offended by this. And I should mention that Corio at one point does mention that he has diplomatic community. But the president, who doesn't really like McGarrett, also doesn't trust anyone and he likes that Steve makes Corio squirm. He has this little smile when they're going back and forth, like he really appreciates Steve's putting Corio in a difficult spot. And it's only when Corio says that if he doesn't know where the president is, the president can't be kept up with news from his country, that Jakal relents and says he needs to come with us. He needs to know so we can keep in touch. And so they sneak him out in a delivery truck. Meanwhile, Kono goes out in Jakal's car and the protesters find out about this. So they go and make a human chain across the road to try to keep him from leaving. Danny gets out and talks to the protesters and the protesters are saying things like, why don't you just run us down? Why don't you just shoot us? The implication is that because Five-O is currently escorting Jakal, or they think that Five-O is escorting Jakal, that they would be willing to use their violent tactics. And, and Dano makes quite clear that, no, that's not how they do things. The funny thing about this is, is that you have to keep in mind, this was 1969. This is not too far removed from the civil rights protests. It's definitely not at all far removed from the Vietnam War protests. And the police were not known for using kind removal techniques when it came to those protests. So really, those protesters had the right to be questioning Dano in general, not just because of the connection to Jakal and his terror regime. Like earlier, Benu makes a point of saying that the American government will support anyone who's not a communist, even if they are killers and butchers. And she's not wrong. The American government is notorious for not only supporting, but also installing leaders who, as long as they support the American imperialist ideas, that they will turn a blind eye to a lot of the crimes that they commit in their own countries. So the protesters had some valid concerns, but because this is 5-0 and they most of the time operate above board, Dano actually takes their questioning quite calmly and as he does, draws this human chain of protesters who are harassing him away from the road so the car can actually get past. So he, in essence, tricks them, which I did think was rather clever and a quite passive way of getting that done. But obviously it disappoints Benu terribly. And Mickey says, well, we'll find out where he is. We'll go to the hotel. And she's like, what? To protest? My grandfather was right. Protests and speeches don't do anything. They only respect what they fear and they fear violence. And you're kind of not surprised that Banu takes that tact because... Her grandfather did ask her, what do you want me to do, kill him? And she's like, yeah, if you can. So she's really pretty understandably bitter about her parents' deaths. And she's willing to go to violent means to avenge them. Meanwhile, you have Jakal getting to his hotel in the delivery truck. And no incidents. But when they get there, Corio says he's going back to the consulate. And Steve, who doesn't trust anyone, has Chin Ho tail him. And it's a great little tailing dub by Tin Ho. 
there's a great shot of him watching Corio like across a fountain which is kind of fun. And so he finds Clovis and Walters by the pool. So Chin Ho takes that information back to, to Steve at 5-0. And that's where you start getting the inkling that all is not as it, as it appears. It really starts off that way. When you have the pilot, it seems like, you know, you just have two pilots flying this plane. And as soon as one pilot goes to the back, the other pilot fakes this landing. And you find out that he's been recruited by Clovis and Walters. And then you see Corio meet up with them and you realize this is something more than just assassination attempts. This is more than just robbery. There's something else going on here. And you don't find out exactly what that is until just about the very end. So I'm not going to spoil that for you. The one spoiler thing I will say is that Kono is living the high life pretending to be this dictator because he's just locked away in this hotel room and they just keep feeding him and he it's the greatest thing in the world because he says he's pretty sure the state of Hawaii is paying for it. But we do see that Banu succumbs to her murderous rage and decides that violence is the answer because she sneaks into the hotel and up to that floor as a maid. And she's wearing a very short white shift dress. And we see her conceal a gun. And she does so by like using an elastic band and fastening it to the, it's a small gun, and fastening it to the inside of her thigh, which props to her because like I said, it is a very short shift dress. It's white. You can see that she's wearing a slip underneath of it. So when she comes up to the door, because they show them frisking the room service guys, when she comes up to the door, the cop only searches the linens. The other cop gives her a once over to see if he can see anything. They don't pat her down and he can't see anything. So they let her go in. And when she comes in, Kono has her, his back to her. I would think that you would be able to tell that Kono is much larger than Jakal but apparently not so much. So she goes, she puts the linens away. She gets the gun out from its hiding place. And when she comes out, she points the gun at him and says, for my mother and father. And Kono turns around like, what? And she realizes it's not Jakal. And the other two officers come and like tackle her. And she realizes what she almost could have done. And poor Kono looks absolutely horrified that this young girl nearly killed him while he was thinking he had a real easy duty of just hanging out in a hotel room and being fed like a king. Dan will warn him that he should get used to it. So let's take a look at our guest cast who all deserve diplomatic immunity because they're so great. Professor Akbar Savang was played by Joe DeSantis. He has 153 credits listed on IMDb going back to 1949. He was in TV shows like Sea Hunt, Bourbon Street Beat, Rawhide, Surfside 6, Thriller, Route 66, Car 54, Where Are You, The Untouchables, 77 Sunset Strip, Wagon Train, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Perry Mason, The Monsters, Gunsmoke, The Door Stay Show, Bonanza, Mission Impossible, The Flying Nun, Mannix, and Cannon. He was in the movies The Brotherhood, Blue, The Professionals, Madam X, Cry Tough, Al Capone, and I Want to Live. And he was in the TV movies, Honor Thy Father, It's Good to Be Alive, Contract on Cherry Street, and Suburban Beat. Luang Koryo was played by Paul Stevens. We'll see him in one more episode. He was Dr. Paul Fuller on The Nurses. And he was Brian Bancroft on Another World. He also turned up in the shows Naked City, Doctors and Nurses, Man from Uncle, The Defenders, Wild Wild West, Ironside, Mission Impossible, The Rookies, Mannix, Gunsmoke, Get Christy Love, SWAT, The Streets of San Francisco, and The Rockford Files. He was in the movies Battle for the Planet of the Apes, 
Patton with George C. Scott, Rage, also with George C. Scott, and Corky, not with George C. Scott. And he was in the TV movies Montserrat, Law of the Land, and In the Glitter Palace. President Jacal was played by Titos Vandis. He was Mr. Nicholas on Beretta. He also turned up in the shows Mission Impossible, The Flying Nun, The Odd Couple, Get Christy Love with Paul Stevens, MASH, Mannix, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, The Rookies, Wonder Woman, Charlie's Angels, Barney Miller, Nero Wolf, The Love Boat, Trapper John, Airwolf, A-Team, and he also had recurring roles on two Greek TV series. He was in the movies Fletch Lives, Oh God, Movie Madness, A Piece of the Action, The Exorcist, the Other Side of Midnight, and Stiletto, and he was in the TV movies, The Last Angry Man, Satan's Triangle, The President's Mistress, and Terror at Alcatraz. Banu Savong was played by Cynthia Hull. She was Anne on Here Come the Brides. She was also in episodes of The Andy Griffith Show, The Monkees, Ironside, The Flying Nun, with Joe DeSantis, who played her grandfather in this episode, and Adam Twelve. She was also in the movies High Yellow and The Young Runaways, and she was in the TV movie, Wild Women. Malcolm Hood Clovis was played by Bruce Wilson. This is his second of seven episodes. We also saw him in To Hell with Babe Ruth. Earl Walters was played by Bob Basso. This is the third of eight episodes. We also saw him in And They Painted Daisies on His Coffin and One for the Money. Alec McLeod was played by Ted Thorpe. This is his first of five episodes. He had a lot of uncredited and small roles in movie and TV shows like Route 66, Michael Shane, Father's Knows Best, and the movies Backstreet and If a Man Answers. But he also did the location casting for 70 episodes of Hawaii Five-0. Mei Lang, the resistance fighter who stole the gas truck, he was played by Daniel Aids. He also turned up in TV shows like Girl from Uncle, Wild Wild West, Policewoman, McLeod, Starsky and Hutch, and Buck Rogers, and he was in the movies Real Genius, Ten to Midnight, Movie Madness, with Tito Svandis, The Happy Hooker Goes to Hollywood, and Targets. And in an uncredited role, Mickey was played by Tim Donnelly. He was best known as Chet Kelly on Emergency. He also turned up in shows uh, The Virginian, Dragnet 67, and Adam 12 because he was a Jack Webb regular. BJ and the Bear, Chips, and the A-Team. He was also in the movies Secret of Santa Vittoria, The Toolbox Murders, and The Clonus Horror, which was made immortal on an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. He often turns up in projects that are directed by his brother Dennis Donnelly, so it was kind of no surprise when I saw that Dennis was listed as the assistant director on this episode of Hawaii Five-0. But Dennis will actually go on to direct six episodes of the show, so we'll talk about him later. The director of this episode, Irving J. Moore, this is his only episode of Hawaii Five-0, but he did direct 26 episodes of The Wild Wild West, 12 episodes of Tightrope, 7 episodes of Maverick, 6 episodes of 77 Sunset Strip, 14 episodes of Hawaiian Eye, 6 episodes of Perry Mason, 14 episodes of Gunsmoke, 7 episodes of Korg, 7000 BC, 12 episodes of Petroselli, 10 episodes of Bigfoot and Wild Boy, 15 episodes of Eight is Enough, 59 episodes of Dynasty, and 52 episodes of Dallas. He also directed the TV movie Making of a Male Model, and he directed the TV miniseries Dynasty the Reunion. And that is Leopard on the Rock. It's a real solid episode. Instead of having 5-0 solving crimes, you actually have 5-0 trying to prevent crimes. 
And then you throw in the political element and how this can blow up on a much larger scale because Jakal being such a controversial character in so many ways, it kind of ups the ante a little bit. You also get the nice twist at the end of how this all plays out and comes together. Maybe it's not the most exciting episode, but it definitely is still very interesting. It's worth a watch. Episode 12, The Devil and Mr. Frog. Air date, December 10th, 1969, directed by Michael O'Hurley. This is the second of 36 episodes for him and written by Robert C. Dennis. This is the fifth of six. Someone in a devil mask checks on a little boy chained in a room. Outside, he has a conversation with another masked man, instructing Mr. Frog that if he's not back by five, that he's to kill the boy. The little boy overhears this. He calls to Mr. Frog and asks to use the bathroom. As soon as they're outside, the boy runs for it. Mr. Frog chases after him in the dark and ends up falling to his doom along the cliffs. The boy, Scotty Gainham, is safely recovered and Steve takes his father to see him. During the car ride, Mr. Gainham confesses to Steve that he paid the ransom against Steve's advice, but it worked because Scotty was freed. Steve informs him that he wasn't freed. Scotty escaped. Scotty had apparently been found walking down a road by a farmer who recognized him and called 5-0. Father and son are reunited at the farmer's place. Steve asks Scotty if he knows where he was being held, but all Scotty can tell him is that it's a cabin in the woods. It was too dark to see where he was when he escaped. He just ran and Mr. Frog fell off a cliff. Steve talks to the farmer who points out where he found Scotty, what direction he was walking in, and then tells Steve that where he can find an unused cabin in the woods nearby. Steve sends Daniel with Scotty and Mr. Gainham to get Scotty's statement on tape while he and Chen Ho check the cabin, but all they find there is evidence that Scotty had been held. It's vacant. Chen eventually finds Mr. Frog and lets Steve know that the fall didn't kill him. Mr. Frog has a bullet in his head. Back at headquarters, Steve listens to Scotty's statement regarding the devil and Mr. Frog. There's currently no ID on Mr. Frog yet, and none of the ransom money has circulated. 5 considers the possibility that it might be in the process of being laundered. Mr. Gibbons, a.k.a. the Devil, goes to see Tot Key, money launderer. It seems that Gibbons' partner, Pete Colley, a.k.a. Mr. Frog, had made a deal with Tot Key to buy $300,000 ransom money for $150,000 in clean money. However, Tot Key has no memory of such deal. His amnesia in, is in part due to the papers reporting that Colley was found dead from a gunshot, not a fall. Gibbons said that he put his partner out of his misery, but murder is murder and 5 will be coming for him. As if called, Dano arrives and Gibbons hides just in time. Danny invites Todd Key to a meeting at 5 headquarters. At this meeting with three other known money launderers, Steve asks if anyone has been offered the ransom money yet. Naturally, everyone says no. That settled, Steve explains they'll be watched closely and warns them of what could happen if they get caught. Everyone leaves on the same page just as Gainham comes in, asking for progress on finding the kidnappers. Steve tells him that they've identified Mr. Frog, but not the devil. Gainham isn't impressed and tells 5-0 that he wants that ransom money back now that Scotty is safe. Steve assures him that they're working on it, but the disdain is palpable. Gibbons is waiting for Tot Key when he returns from the meeting. Knowing that he'll have to sit on the money for quite a while because it's so hot, Tatki offers Gibbons 10 cents on the dollar, a lousy $30,000. Gibbons says no and that he'll go to someone else. Tatki offers to give him the names of his competitors who were at the meeting. Gibbons leaves, but Tatki is confident that he'll be back. 
After a visit to his boat by the landlord in which he can only pay $4 on the rent, Gibbons hides the money in an oxygen tank, taking a few bills from the stash, which he passes in a craps game, giving him enough clean money to pay the rent. When the hot bills turn up, Steve goes undercover as a dock worker for a minute to shoot craps and nab the guy who passed the bills. The man tells him that he won that money in another crap game, and he has an alibi for the kidnapping. Now Steve and Five-O know that whoever has the money is desperate enough, and how they'll pass it. Totkey finds this out too, and he doesn't like it. It will ruin things for everyone. So he has his secretary, Missy, arrange a meeting with Gibbons, luring him away from his boat, so two of Totkey's men can look for the money. Gibbons, however, isn't lured far enough, and he witnesses the men searching the boat. When one of them starts to pull something up from the side of the boat, Gibbons shoots him. Danny brings the shooting to Steve, pointing out that Gibbons did time with Collie. It's enough of a coincidence to bring Five-O to the boat for a search and questioning. They don't find the money, but they take Gibbons into custody anyway. Gaynum spoke to the kidnappers. It's possible that he might recognize the voice. Dano asks if Steve is taking odds, and he's willing to give him two. Slim and none. So this episode is a different take on a traditional kidnapping story. Usually in those episodes, someone is kidnapped. Sometimes we see the kidnapping, but the person's kidnapped. They're held for ransom, and it's all about how the cops are going to get the kidnapping victim back safely without giving up the ransom money. We actually saw this earlier in the first season with Tiger by the Tail. Obviously, the twist there was that Salmonio orchestrated his own kidnapping, but the premise was still the same. In this episode, we're looking at the kidnapping from the post-kidnapping world where the victim gets away because they escaped, but the ransom's already been paid. And so now it's a matter of how does the kidnapper get rid of the ransom money? Which is something we don't often have to think about because usually the kidnappers are thwarted before this happens. In this case, kidnappers were kind of thwarted by a 10-year-old boy, but also got their money. And how do you get rid of hot money when there's serial numbers that have been marked down so they can trace the money and hopefully trace it back to the kidnappers so they can find them. So this episode takes a look at the aftermath. We have the, our remaining kidnapper trying to launder this money so he's able to live the high life, which was the whole point of kidnapping the kid to begin with. And let's give it up for Scotty because he's like 10 and he overhears them talking about how they're probably going to have to kill him. And he decides, I'd rather live. And he comes up with the idea to make a break for it by asking Mr. Frog to take him to the bathroom, which is located in another building. I think it's like an outhouse. And as soon as he sees his opportunity, he, he runs for it. So props to the kid for having that presence of mind to escape. But the ransom has already been paid, and we see in the car when Steve is taking Mr. Gainham to go see his son, he confesses that he's he paid the ransom, and that's why Scotty was released when Bivo wanted to do surveillance and not pay the ransom because, as Steve said in Tiger by the Tail, once they get the ransom, the odds of getting the victim back alive are basically nil. But Mr. Gainham went behind Steve's back and did this, and then finds out that Scotty escaped. And you see, like his relief kind of morph into, oh, you know, I just lost $300,000, but it's okay because I got my son back. And you do see the joyous reunion of father and son. And Mr. Gainham is very much, I don't want him to be questioned right now. He's been through a lot, but Steve gets enough out of him to get the, the lead on where the cabin might be, especially after he talks to the farmer. 
Meanwhile, Scotty and his dad go off with Dano to get a, a taped statement, which we hear later. And it's quite sweet because Scotty's relaying what happened, but he's getting sleepier and sleepier as the tape goes on. And finally he falls asleep. And Dano says, I didn't have the heart to wake him up. So cute. But Steve and Chin Ho go to the cabin. They find evidence that Scotty had been held there. They go, they find the dead Mr. Frog and realize that he didn't die from the fall, that he was shot in the head. So they know that there's at least one other kidnapper out there, the devil, and he's out there with the money. And really there's not a whole lot they can do at this point because they're basically waiting for some of the money to turn up. And that's when they come up with the idea of, well, you can't spend hot money. They're not going to be able to sit on it. Laundering it would be your best bet because there are some people who can afford to sit on $300,000 for a couple of years or get rid of it in other ways. And Steve asks for suggestions on this. Who who would who who are your go-to money launderers? And they come up with the names of Humboldt Brothers and I think the other guy was named Deanne or something like that. And Todd Key. And that's when we're introduced to Todd Key. Well, first we're introduced to his very cool secretary, Missy, who advises one man who comes in that there are several people waiting ahead of him and he's gonna have to wait his turn, and that's when we meet Gibbons, who's the next appointment. It turns out that Gibbons is the devil and he's trying to finish this deal that Collie set up, his partner who's now dead. And Totki is played by James Hong. We all know how great James Hong is. So the interplay between him and Gibbons, who's played by Frank Marth, is really great because he's playing very coy about his knowledge and, you know, I haven't seen the papers, but I know that Collie's dead and I know that he, it says here that he was murdered and... Gibbons tells him that he had no choice because Collie was badly hurt. He couldn't get him out of the canyon, so he put him out of his misery. But he wants this deal completed, and due to the publicity, Totki's reluctant. And then he gets this alert from his secretary, Missy, that the cops are outside. So he tells Gibbons to hide, and Dano comes in with the secretary. Now, Missy is played by Melody Patterson, who was married to James MacArthur for a while. I don't think they were married when this episode was filmed, but we do get one small scene with them together, and it's this one. And you realize then that Missy is very much so in on her boss's business, that she's not just a pretty face that hustles appointments. She knows all of the intricate details. Danny invites Todd Key to come to a meeting at 5.0 and basically says that it's not optional. And of course, that key goes. And there are other money launderers there. And Steve fills them in on the what for. Another great scene because they're, the Humboldt brothers never speak. But the other guy and Taki do, and they're very careful about what they say because they're trying to make sure that they look like, I have no idea what you're talking about with the money laundering. We are all honest businessmen and we respect 5 and Mr. McGarrick greatly. And it's a, it's a really great scene. It's not quite kissing up, but it's like, we all know what everyone is about. Here are the platitudes that we're operating with. And then when, when the meeting ends and Steve lets them all out, he goes to the door and opens the door and he's like, all right, gentlemen, I won't keep you any longer. I'll let you go back to your office so you can make an honest buck. So it's a nice little dig as he lets them out. But then Ganem comes in and that's when you realize that getting Scotty back isn't good enough. And he's not even looking for really justice for what happened to his son and isn't too concerned about having the kidnappers arrested. 
so much as that is how he will get his money back. And that's what he cares about the most is getting back his $300,000. And you can see the way that Steve and Danny look at each other, the way they act, they, the way they reply to Ganem, that they just absolutely disdain this man because it's his own fault that he's out this money because he didn't follow instructions, but also that that's what he cares about the most, that having his son back isn't good enough that he's not focused on nabbing the people who did this to his son. I mean, let's face it, 10-year-olds are resilient, but he's probably going to be needing years of therapy after this. Justice would go a long way in easing that boy's mind, and yet his father's focus isn't even there. He wants his money, and he leaves very dissatisfied with the way 5-0 is going about getting his money back. And Steve really doesn't care. And Taki pretends not to care about Gibbon's plight because Gibbon's still waiting for him when he gets back to the office. And he ends up making him the offer of 10 cents on the dollar, which Gibbons finds insulting. And he leaves. And Missy questions Taki about that. And he's like, oh, he'll be back. So Gibbons ends up going back to his houseboat. That's where he lives on this boat in the marina. And his landlord comes by and his landlord is a character. And this is why I'm sad that there are no sound clips because this guy is a, a real pip. Anyway, he asks for permission to come aboard because he wants to collect his rent and all Gibbons has is $4. And he's like, take it if it's good for you. And the guy takes the $4 and then says, I'll be back day after tomorrow. And so Gibbons is pretty frustrated and he's pretty desperate because he has all this money and he can't even pay the damn rent. So he stashes it from the suitcase it's in to an empty oxygen tank, like a scuba tank. And he takes some of the bills out and that's when he goes, runs them in a crap game in order to get some fresh cash, which he uses then to pay off the, the landlord later. And for a hot second, we get Steve undercover as a dock worker. So he's a little grungy and he's wearing a blue button-down shirt and he's being very active in this craps game that's being played and he ends up talking to, well, arresting at first, but talking to the guy that passed the bills and he absolutely has an alibi. And he didn't see the guy who laid down the money because, well, you don't look at the guy's face. You look at the bills when you're playing craps. I will take his word for it because I've seen craps played multiple times on multiple TV shows and multiple movies. I still have no idea how this game works. You throw money down, you throw dice, and someone declares you a winner or a loser. It's magic to me. I will stick to blackjack and poker. I can deal with that. So 5-0 realizes how, how the kidnapper might be desperate enough to pass the bills. And of course, this knowledge also reaches Tot Key and he knows exactly who's doing it. And he's pretty upset about that because at one point, Gibbons did come back to him and he only offered him 12 and a half cents on the dollar and Gibbons again wouldn't take it and hung up on him. And so when he finds out that he's passing money in the craps game, he's really upset. And he's like, why didn't he come to me? And Missy points out, well, he did. And so he decides that he needs to arrange a meeting, in air quotes, with Gibbons. And basically, it's just a way to lure him away from the boat so two of his men can go searching for the boat. Here's the thing. So he hid this money in, in an oxygen tank, which makes sense. Who's going to look in an oxygen tank for a bunch of ransom money? But what he ended up doing was tying it to a rope and hanging it off the side of his boat. So one of the guys who's searching the boat sees this and goes hmm this is suspicious and starts pulling it up well Gibbons didn't go very far and he's watching the guys raid his boat and when the guy starts pulling this rope up and you just get a glimpse of the oxygen tank he shoots him Gibbons shoots him well here's the thing Gibbons isn't even on the boat he's a ways away from the boat the guy is not a threat to him 
and he shoots him and HPD seems to be fine with this. Like, oh, well, he shot a prowler. He shot a prowler in broad afternoon with tons of witnesses. The prowler was on his boat. He wasn't on his boat. He was a distance away. The prowler was apparently not even armed. Just in what universe is this okay? The Hawaii Five-O universe, I guess, because this shooting is really, really suspect. But it works out in Five-O's favor because HBD mentions it because the dead... Prowler is one of Taki's men, and they find out that Gibbons served time with Kali, so they go talk to him. And like I said, it was really kind of a bizarre choice to hang the oxygen tank off the side of the boat. Like, that rope wouldn't be noticed, but it did play off later because when they're searching the boat, as they're taking him off, I think it's Kono that points out, look at this, and there's the rope hanging off the boat, and when Kono pulls it up, you're expecting that he's going to pull up the oxygen tank, and he pulls up a bottle of wine. And Gibbons is like, yeah, that's the best way I know to chill it. So it does set up for a nice swerve, but it's kind of an odd choice by Gibbons to begin with. But they get him down to 5-0, but they take him into custody and they really don't have much to hold him on. They're hoping that he was the one that made the ransom call so Ganem can identify his voice. And like Dano says, you got a slim to none chance on that playing out. And Dano's right. So Gainem isn't impressed that they, they caught this guy and it turns out that he wasn't the one that made the ransom call and Gibbons assures Mr. Gainem that he didn't kidnap his son. So Gainem leaves pissed and then Gibbons leaves thinking he's gotten away with something. Even though Steve says, we know you did this and we will figure it out. What follows, and I don't want to get too spoilery on this, but what follows is basically harassment. Because it's one thing to keep him under surveillance to see if he makes any phone calls or tries to get rid of the ransom money. But they're like not even, at least with Kono and and Chin Ho, they're not even hiding it. Like he can see them. At one point he goes to get something to eat at a food truck and he looks over and there's Kono eating a sandwich. Quite hilariously. You also have, at one point he looks over and there's Chin Ho. One point he opens the door of his houseboat to look outside and there's Chin Ho on the deck of his houseboat wearing the frog mask. That's not keeping somebody under surveillance. That's blatant harassment at that point. Crossing a line. But hey, you can also shoot prowlers in this universe. So carry on, I suppose. Just a little suspension of disbelief, which comes in handy when you see Danny's role in the surveillance, which I will not spoil. That is something you have to see to truly enjoy. Also truly enjoyable is this guest cast, so let's take a closer look at them. As I said, Gibbons was played by Frank Marth. He was General Worth on the Dirty Dozen TV show. He also turned up on The Patty Duke Show, Perry Mason and the New Perry Mason, The Man from Uncle, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Green Hornet, The Invaders, The Big Valley, Virginian, Hogan's Heroes, Mission Impossible, Mannix, Ironside, Chopper One, Gunsmoke, MASH, Cannon, The Streets of San Francisco, Wonder Woman, Little House on the Prairie, Starsky and Hutch, Battlestar Galactica, Trapper John MD, Quincy Emmy, Voyagers, and The A-Team. He turned up in the movies Showdown, The Last Man, Pendulum, and Madam X. And he was in the TV movies, Satan's School for Girls, Crime Club, Big Borrower Steel, and The Maneaters Are Loose. As I said, Top Key was played by James Hong. This is his second of four episodes. We also saw him in A Thousand Pardons, You're Dead. 
Ganem was played by Bill Zuckert. This is his third of three episodes. We also saw him in Once Upon a Time, parts one and two. And of course, Missy was played by Melody Patterson. We'll see her in two more episodes. She's probably best known as Wrangler Jane on F Troop. She also turned up in episodes of The Monkees, Adam 12, and Green Acres. And she was also in the movies Blood and Lace, The Cycle Savages, and The Angry Breed. The Farmer was played by Arthur He. This is his third of nine episodes. He was also in And They Painted Daisies on His Coffin and Pray Love Remember, Pray Love Remember. Scotty was played by Jeffrey Thorpe. This is his second of four episodes. He was also in Pray Love Remember, Pray Love Remember. Radar was played by Mark Laboose. This is his third of three episodes. We also saw him in Cocoon and 24 Carat Kill. Garo Yen was played by Galen Cam. This is his second of 11 episodes. We also saw him in Sweet Terror. And in an uncredited role, Pete Colley was played by Chuck Couch. This is his third of 17 episodes. We also saw him in Not That Much Different and Sweet Terror. And that is The Devil and Mr. Frog. I know I didn't really go on about this episode too much, but it really is quite a good episode. Like I said, it is a different take on this simple kidnapping tale, and we get to see the aftermath of the kidnapping and the troubles the kidnapper has to go through to get rid of the money that he has. And there's also a nice twist at the end about what Gibbons does in order to get rid of the money. It doesn't go the way you think it will, but then when you think back to the rest of the episode, it makes perfect sense. This one does things differently. It's definitely worth a watch. And that is episode 19 of Bookum Dano. Two really solid episodes. I think I liked The Devil and Mr. Frog just a little bit better than Leopard on the Rock, but they're both actually quite good and enjoyable watches. And both of them have some nice twists. And that's always fun. Thank you once again for joining me. As always, I apologize for the background noise. Shouldn't have been too bad today. Also, recording with a sore throat was probably not my smartest idea, but I do a podcast about a 50-year-old show. We already know I don't make good decisions. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. It is the home for Bookum Dano. And if you need my bad decisions and consequences in real time, you can do that by following me on Twitter at kikiwrites. So enjoy life like your Kono standing in for a cruel dictator in a hotel suite, and make sure you have a solid deal to get rid of that ransom money. Until next time, aloha.